It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We'll review all the big security news of the weekend. Yes, there was quite a bit. But we'll also uh, talk about uh, something we both loved, the movie The Imitation Game. We'll talk about the historical inaccuracies. But then Steve's going to go a a deep dive on how the German Enigma machine actually worked. It's kind of a, a fascinating story. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 490, recorded January 13th, 2015. The Enigma. Security Now is brought to you by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase when you use the offer code SECURITYNOW at checkout. It's time for Security Now. It's a winter, a cold winter Tuesday, but not where we are because we're in California. Steve Gibson is here from grc.com. He's the guy in charge. He's the author of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Our security guru joins us each week to talk about security. And this yeah. week, security from the 40s, 1940s. Yes. Yes, Steve. we're going to uh, – this is the Enigma Machine episode. And boy, um, when I did the feedback I received after announcing that that's what we would do this week, uh, last week was – Really significant. I think Good. everyone I'm very excited. Is, I'm excited. Is excited yeah. to to learn how it works. Um, so I, I saw thinking, the imitation game. I said I oh, would. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I said I would watch it, and I loved it. Yeah. And Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, you know, it's going to be a tough Oscar field, but he he'll get a nomination. I'm sure he deserves it. He's great in this. Really brings Alan Turing to life. Now I don't I don't know how accurate it is, but boy, you've. It's got heart. It's got soul. It's a beautiful performance, and I think, as far as I can tell, right, historically accurate. A little less so than oh. many people believe. Oh, okay. Uh, for example, he didn't build the first Enigma decrypting machine. Oh, uh, the Polish cryptographers did that. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about the history of Enigma before getting into the exact mechanism and mechanics of how it works. So we will correct the historical record. That doesn't, that, that doesn't take away at all from the fact that it is just, it's a great movie. Oh, yeah. And I would say that it's, you know, loosely based on, on history. Um, but, you know, that doesn't diminish it as a movie at all. I, I think it was just wonderful. Yeah. And they were, I loved, for example, how sharp the MI6 guy was. Wasn't he fun? Loved he was just him. perfect. Loved I just him. wanted him to be that good, yeah. and he was just yeah. that good. Yeah, yeah. And I, and you know, I shared uh, my concerns, that for, and it was not from watching the movie, but from the reviews. I uh, a review, I think a specific review I'd read that said, "Why do we always have to portray our mathematical geniuses as somehow weirdos?" Right. Um, and yes, uh, Turing was a little odd, as as played by Cumberbatch. He's probably Asperger's at least, right? A little bit mm-hmm. on the spectrum. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't think uh, history r- reveals. Although uh, the 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 really the interesting criticism I saw was like, you know, come on, he doesn't understand what a joke is. 
He doesn't understand he's being invited to lunch. Right. I mean, you know, it was like over the top right. for like, okay, how spaced yes. out is this guy? And so that's you know, kind like, of, oh. that is the kind of criticism is why is it that right. you can't be a normal person and brilliant at math? Because clearly there are the vast majority of brilliant mathematicians are not weird. They understand a joke. And uh, right. why, why does Hollywood kind of insist on portraying geeks in general as weirdos? But setting that aside, what a great movie. What a great movie. Great movie. Yeah. Great movie. So we're going to talk so, Enigma. We are. We're going to. It, it's funny. For a while, I was thinking maybe we would do two episodes. One was how it encrypts. And the second one is how it was cracked. But when I got deep into, and I'm talking about weeds, into how the bomba, as they were called, these things that we saw in the movie with their spinning discs, I can explain briefly how it works, but there is no way on a podcast <laughs> to, to, to like accurately convey the actual operation. I will for the Enigma machine. That is it, it's it's interesting how simple that is compared to what Turing had to design in order to decrypt it, and that really was a a, a work of engineering genius. Truly, um, but truly neat. yeah, we also had a bunch of news. Uh, oh, anyway, so so my point is, I'm not going to do a second episode on on how the cracking machine works. I will do. <laughs> we'll Touch wrap on the this highlights. one. Touch on the we'll highlights. wrap this one up yeah. with sort of the concept of of how it works, and I think that's probably all we need anyway. Because how you know how this thing, this this mechanical device that was like clunky, was able to create a a cipher this good is really an interesting story. So, and again, it'll it as I realized when I. I brought myself up to speed. It's like, oh, I can do this on in a podcast. So we're about to see that happen. Um, but we also had a whole bunch of news. Um, we want to uh, follow up from last week on we, – we talked about CryptoWall and AppLocker and Speedy, which was faster, we found out, than HTTPS, uh, you know, sort of the next generation protocol – uh, some news about ISPs having to have their behavior regulated under Title II of the Communications Act. Soho Linux routers being taken over and turned into botnets. Uh, Windows 7 support changes starting today. Uh, Notepad++, which is a very, like a favorite editor for everybody over on Windows. Uh, site was hacked after the Paris attacks. Google annoys Microsoft yet again by pre-declosing <laughs> details of an unpatched Windows vulnerability. U.S. CENTCOM's Twitter and YouTube accounts were hacked. Uh, and unfortunately, we're going to wrap up the week's wrap-up news by talking about the unfortunate position that br our British Prime Minister, oh. David Cameron, has oh. taken. Oh. <laughs> so and you, and lots to talk about. There this you know I saw the Centcom hack and I thought oh crud we're not going to get to Enigma but I think we can touch on all of this and still do <laughs> yeah. Enigma. All right. Yeah. Let's we'll save the commercial uh, we're going to do a nice shaving commercial so we'll save that for ah. uh, after the spin right before we get to Enigma. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So um on CryptoWall uh a friend of the show uh Christian Alexandrov uh, he's our friend in I hope it's Bulgaria who has the dentist who oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
his dental work he has paid for by fixing the guy's computers with Spinrite. Right. Uh, Christian has, has sent a number of testimonials in as he's wandered through the streets fixing, like, the restaurants. He was with his girlfriend, and the restaurant computer wouldn't work, so he fixed that one. And then his dentist's computer wouldn't work, and he fixed that one. So, basically, he, he walks around with a copy of Spinrite and gets free stuff uh, in return for fixing everybody's computers. Anyway, he did some experimenting with uh, CryptoWall, which we talked about last week as the successor to CryptoLocker. And what he discovered, I wanted to share with our listeners because it, it is potentially good news. And that is a non-admin account can be recovered. So in a series of four tweets, Christian wrote, if system protection and system restore run on all drives, including shadow copy services, on non-admin account, there is hope. That's the first tweet. Second one tweet was, under non-admin account, CryptoWall cannot see, delete, or alter any shadow copies used by System Restore and System Protection. Tweet number three, remove malware, then log in as admin, use the Shadow Explorer utility to restore previous versions before infection. And finally, access to read, modify, or delete shadow copies requires full disk access privilege, which non-admin accounts do not have, but admin does. So, thank you, Christian. Uh, essentially, the, the short of that is, if users are running as we... As, as everyone knows they should be rather than as an administrator rather than as an administrator as a non admin account if you get hit by crypto wall um, you're able to restore yourself using the shadow copy uh, system which crypto because because crypto wall will only have the privileges of the logged in user uh, when you get yourself infected and so if you disinfect yourself even though your files are all still scrambled you can then restore from uh backup shadow copies so good to know for anybody to whom that happens and who was properly running as a non-min non-admin account we've also been talking a couple times now about the the notion of whitelisting apps and um it turned out i i got a, a tweet from nathan lemonski who responded after we were talking about it last week, again through Twitter, saying you do not need MS Active Directory slash group policy. For a work group machine, you can use the local policy editor explained, and then he gives a link uh, here, howtogeek.com. And the how to geek link, uh, I imagine if you just put it into Google, it'll find it. Block users from using certain applications with AppLocker. So we know that that's not available on all versions of Windows, but it is on Ultimate and Enterprise. So if you've got Ultimate, uh, even if you're a non in a non-enterprise environment, you don't have to have all of the encumbrance, which is really <laughs> daunting, of Active Directory and everything that comes with it. You can use just your local policy editor. So I imagine that's what I will be doing when I move myself to Windows 7. Um, Oh, and I replied with thanks, and he said back, 
I, I work IT in K-12 education and use AppLocker. Love it. It helps with the malware situation big time. So when it's available, I, I think that we're I think we're going to end up in a whitelisting land uh, as we move forward. And I did want to mention uh, to just sort of close this issue that HowToGeek.com also notes that there is something called Windows Family Safety. And that's available in all versions of Windows, but it's really sort of it, – it has this weird literally parent-child paradigm where you're a child using the computer. <laughs> if, uh, oh, I like that. You know, and when a note pops up, it says you have to ask your parent for permission to, to do this. And so it's like, ah, uh, it's a little unfortunate. But uh, it, it's – apparently it's their – you know, their family-friendly interface to AppLocker. I guess it's better uh, than master-slave. <laughs> it's not intended for kids, right? It's just that's how you think of it. Is Well, it's continue, yeah, it's, it's part of their, uh, what do they call it? The Windows Live Essentials package. So you download well, the Windows for, It is Live for parents then. It is a parental control. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, it is, it is in that mode. It's built into 8, but it's installable uh, under Windows 7. So if you don't have Ultimate, then that's a solution too. Although you do have to put up with being told that, you know, got to ask Daddy uh, if you want to do something. <laughs> Papa so, Sysadmin. IE and Speedy. We talked last week about how Firefox and Chrome were currently Speedy enabled. And someone shot me a note noting that Internet Explorer 11 was. And I thought, huh, I don't quite remember that. But it turns out... It's sort of conditionally so. Um, it's it offers support. IE eleven um, doesn't offer it in the Windows seven version, but it does under Windows eight point one with some problems. Apparently, uh, when you, if you use Google, you get page not found errors, but then if you reload the page, it's happy. So. You know, I, I found a posting saying one fix for this is to disable Speedy in Internet Options Advanced. So it's like, eh, okay, they don't sound like they quite have it right. And in any event, IE will be dropping support for Speedy because it'll be adopting the HTTP slash two standard, which we'll certainly be talking about at great length as that finally begins to happen. It's... um. Continuing to march along, it's in the standards bodies now. Um, and just to remind people, you know, Speedy and uh, basically uh, Speedy got a lot of traction. Speedy is a win, and we, we that we owe our thanks to Google for their experiments with that because it uses a binary protocol rather than the verbose textual protocol that HTTP uses. It allows full multiplex communications over a single connection right now because http is is non-multiplexed meaning that it is a a query response query response query response where you can't go query 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 and then get things back as they come you're essentially a single connection is is blocked by waiting for the response, which is why many browsers now open multiple simultaneous parallel connections to the same server in order to have more going on. 
Um, the problem with that is, as we've talked about in the past, opening a TCP connection is a time-consuming process. TCP doesn't know how fast your connection is, so it does a slow start, and then it sort of waits until you start having packet loss before it backs off and like figures out how much bandwidth you have. So there are lots of reasons why, oh, and it also consumes lots of resources, both at your end and at the other end, for all these all these connections. So it makes way more sense if you do that just once and you're able to just send stuff, send all your requests um, off and simultaneously be receiving whatever of what you asked for the server wants. But even more than that, the server can anticipate requests and send them ahead. So that's another big win in addition to compression. So lots of stuff that that Google pioneered and all of that is in the HTTP slash two specification. And by the way, they, they said they're not going to do like a 2.0 because everyone, I guess, got confused by 1.0 and 1.1 that we've been living with now. So they're just going to do HTTP slash two as the official name for the next one. But again, we'll, uh, we'll deal with that in more detail when, when we, uh, when it starts to happen. Um, also, I, I got a kick out of the way this was characterized in the press in at least a couple places. Um, the uh, During CES, um, during a one-on-one -on -one discussion with the president of the Consumer Electronics Association, uh, that's Gary Shapiro, uh, he was chatting with FCC chairman Tom Wheeler. Tom implied that Title II which we were discussing, I guess you were on the Twit on on your oh, yeah. Sunday Twit show when we had Brett, you had yeah. Brett on. Yeah, um, that Title II of the Communications Act will be the basis for the new net neutrality rules governing the broadband industry, and of course, Title II allows the FCC to regulate telecommunications providers as common carriers. And apparently Obama has urged the commission to use Title II to impose net neutrality rules uh, to, bland, to, to ban blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization and so forth. So anyway, the, the way the press characterized this was that, it that Verizon's great lawsuit backfired because, of course, they sued uh, and won their suit. But, you know, looks like they 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 won the battle, but are maybe losing the war. I wouldn't I wouldn't declare victory just yet. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot more uh, back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. But still, it's good that the I, I'm happy to see that the government is taking us is taking a strong position from which then we can negotiate, right. uh, you know, may, maybe from from that position down rather than just saying, oh, OK, well, you guys do whatever you want to and we'll trust you. <laughs> um, Brian Krebs uh, reported that the Lizard Squad, we talked about Lizard Squad in the last couple of weeks, you know, they they came to the four to the four over the Christmas holidays because they brought down both Xbox Live and uh, the Sony PlayStation Network over the holidays um, with some with like claiming that they did it to show that the security was weak on those networks when in fact what they did was blast them with you know a ton of bandwidth which is a fundamental sad fact of the internet is that links have a have a 
have a limited amount of bandwidth. There are unfortunately many computers on the internet which are not secure, which can be taken over and have historically been taken over by botnets and used to all send traffic to a single point of focus, which ends up collapsing the hardware. I mean, the, the routers on the way in as the, as the traffic aggregates from one router to the next, finally you get to a point where either the link can no longer carry that amount of traffic or the router can't route that many packets per second. Um, what Brian Krebs reported, though, was really interesting. It turns out that Lizard Squad's botnet is largely powered by our little blue box consumer routers. We've we talked also recently warned, about warned of, uh, of this. Yep. Yep. Exactly. There are known backdoors which have not been patched. And I mean, there some in some cases patches are available. In other cases, the backdoor has been modified to make it much more difficult to to. You have to knock on the door essentially locally. Which, pre- which precludes a remote internet attack. But routers are not perfect. And their, their public, their WAN interface is out there. And this is a little Linux machine running in these boxes. It turns out that th- they've created a worm so that compromised routers scan the net for other compromised routers and are able to take them over. And the, the Christmas attacks were powered by consumer routers that are running their botnet uh, in the background. So, uh, and, you know, I imagine that listeners to this podcast probably have replaced the default firmware with with Tomato or, um, you know, one of the alternative better packages, or at least they're keeping themselves current with what the manufacturers provided. But we know that there are millions of these little routers that are, you know, sitting in a dusty closet and they're doing their job, but they're also doing more than their job. Well, the and other problem is that router manufacturers consider these commodity devices and often don't update. Do, do we know what devices were suspect? And it was a huge, yeah. it was everything, right? It was huge. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It was a huge list. It was cross-manufacturer and and just a, a vast array of routers. It was what uh, reference code in the chipset that uh, everybody implemented, or I'm trying to remember yeah. the detail. Well, you you know, I don't need to. Yeah. Anyway, is there a fix or a way to know if you're vulnerable? There really isn't. Um, is you're not going to see it on the LAN side if you suspect. I mean, if like if if if. You have lights on your cable modem or your, uh, you know, fiber interface separate from the router, and they're going like crazy, but you're not doing anything. That is, your router is doing something. That would be a tip-off. Mostly just, you know, you want to not use default usernames and passwords. Uh, uh, Brian noted that as a major uh, reason that these routers have been exploited is that people just, ne- you know, they, they left the manufacturer's well-known defaults, you know, that way. So they were, it was very easy for bad guys to get into them. So you want to change username and password, um, turn off remote management features. Almost no one needs them, but generally they're, they're un- unfortunately all too often on enabled by, by default. Um, and, 
uh, and, and keep the router's firmware current. If there is a firmware update, there's a reason. <laughs> so, because as you state, you know, none of these router manufacturers are excited about updating firmware for commodity devices. So, if something has driven them to do so, there's a reason. So, you want that firmware update. Um, Simon Zarafa, another friend of our show, uh, sent me. He, he tweeted, and I was able to capture the screen of notepad plus plus dot org while it was defaced. Uh, the only thing that was really interesting about this was that for some reason, well, I guess to show solidarity, um, the notepad plus plus guys did a Je suis Charlie version of notepad plus plus. It's version 6.7.4 and you can get it from them. And someone tweeted that, Actually, John M., uh, whose handle is Liquid Retro, he tweeted that he downloaded that version it just coincidentally the night before, and it typed out a Je suis Charlie message the first time he ran it. So anyway, uh, as a consequence of that, I guess the people uh, over on the other side were un- unimpressed by Notepad++'s uh, 6.7.4 version. And unfortunately, their web server had a way in, so they suffered a defacement, which uh, last I looked, I guess it is back up. I, there was one point when they, it took them a while to notice it. Then they had nothing up there except sort of a naked directory listing. <laughs> uh, and then they got their site back up. So, uh, and, But apparently they're still offering that version for anyone who cares. Um, today... In my notes, I said tomorrow, but it's actually today, the 13th. Windows 7 support status changes. Windows 7 is getting old, probably old enough for me to start using it. Um, uh, (laughs) In fact, what's happened is that as of today, mainstream support ends and extended support continues. Now, the good news is we really don't need mainstream support. Extended support is what Microsoft calls it, where they keep sending out patches, which is all we really want. And we get five more years of that. Extended support for Windows 7 runs through January 14th of 2020. So five more years. So And, and so what's being lost with mainstream support is the no charge incident support handling, warranty claims, any design changes and feature requests, not that they weren't ignoring them before, but now they're officially ignoring them, Um, and any non-security-related hotfixes. We don't get any of that anymore, but there is still available paid support, security updates, and, of course, all of the various online support resources will be kept available for another five years. So it does sound like it's, you know, maybe about time for me to switch to seven. Um, okay, now this was fun. Uh, we've, we've seen this happen before and it just happened again, which is that Microsoft is unhappy with Google over Google's pre-disclosure of a bug in Windows that Microsoft has not yet gotten around to patching. This is the second one, right? This isn't the one that... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because the first one, so, they waited 90 days. 
it was not a minor, a major flaw. It had required physical access, and Microsoft said, "All right, we're going to patch it." And that's yeah, kind this of is, normal. That's normal, right? You wait, you tell them, tell the company ninety well, days later if they don't do anything. I think there's a yeah, reasonable. I mean, so yes, um, th this second flaw is similar. Uh, it's a little more severe. It, it's a. Uh, uh, it still looks like local access only and an elevation of privilege. So you can get rights that you're not supposed to have. Um, they, uh, it, and it, uh, so, okay, so looking at the Google page, you, you know, reading about this, it also includes a proof of concept uh, right. batch right. file. Right. So it's like, okay, everyone can do this. And down at the bottom of the page, it says, this bug is subject to a 90-day disclosure deadline. If 90 days elapse without a broadly available patch, then the bug report will automatically become visible to the public. Now, I don't know, I don't it's not clear to me whether if a patch were available, then they wouldn't make this page available because at that point they sort of could, it'd be benign, but what I, what I got a kick out of was that there was also a little bit of dialogue in the thread conversation among those who are who have privileged access to this back on the 11th of November. Um, so what two months ago? Uh, it in, in this sort of this dialogue thread, it says Microsoft confirmed that they are on target to provide fixes for these issues in February 2015. They asked if this would cause a problem with the 90-day deadline. And the response was Microsoft were informed that the 90-day deadline is fixed for all vendors and bug classes, so cannot be extended. Further, they were informed that the 90-day deadline for this issue expires on the 11th of January, 2015. Now, of course, today is Patch Tuesday. It's the 13th. So... This 90 days expired two days before Patch Tuesday. Okay, then a month later, on the 11th of December, we see in this, in this dialogue, in this thread, Microsoft confirmed that they anticipate to provide fixes for these issues in January of 2015. And then a month later, on January, uh, oh, and in my, my notes, I have 2014, I meant 2015, that is two days ago, it says... Deadline exceeded, automatically de-restricting. Now, Microsoft didn't, didn't like this at all. And there is a lengthy, annoyed blog posting uh, 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 <laughs> by the guy who's in charge of the, of the Security Response Center titled, A Call for Better Coordination of Vulnerability Disclosure. Or a better for a call for better coordinated vulnerability disclosure. So, I can. I mean, the 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 problem with the ninety days is that due to Microsoft's fixed thirty day calendar, that is, the Microsoft has committed to only to, only releasing on second Tuesday of every month. This sort of has a a you know, a 60, 90, 120 effect, um, meaning that, you know, if, you know, Microsoft might have had the patch ready two weeks ago, but couldn't patch until today. So 
if Microsoft weren't committed to only releasing on a, on on the calendar month, then they could be re- more responsive. If they had it ready on the sixty first day, missing the sixtieth day, then they'd be okay. Anyway, so uh, just sort of interesting to see this going on. And and here again, you know, Google is just sticking to it, saying we think. 90 days is enough. Now, of course, Google is is asynchronously updating Chrome on a continuing basis. Google is updating all of their web apps on a continuing basis. So they have no, no notion of, of sort of a lockstep calendar-based uh, uh, patch cycle. Thus, they really get 90 days, whereas Microsoft arguably uh, has a bigger problem with that. But at the same time, also in the news, is Google's abandonment of pre-version 4.4 Android updates, which surprised a lot of people. Um, uh, I think it's yesterday, uh, Metasploit, the hacking kit, was updated to include 11 new exploits, which are effective against the default web view based browser in android versions prior to 4.4 which is at the moment 61% of the android install base which google has clearly stated it does not intend to fix um now the whole story is a little bit more subtle than that you know so you know the press has gone crazy over this about you know the idea that more than you know more than 60 percent 61% of pre 4.4 version android web uh browsers uh that is the you know the default browser for android now have 11 known and like you know hacking kit level turnkey script kitty a bull exploits that Microsoft is, I mean, that Google has said, ah, no, you know, it's old. We're not fixing those. It turns out that, in fact, in a, in a dialogue that the Metasploit guys, the, the Rapid7 guys had with Google, Google said, well, um, uh, and, and quoting from the conversation, if the affected version of WebView is before 4.4, we gen- this is Google speaking, we generally do not develop the patches ourselves, but welcome patches which accompany the report for consideration. Other than notifying OEMs, we will not be able to take action on any report that is affecting versions before 4.4 that are not accompanied by a patch, which everyone sort of thought, well, okay, but that's not the way it works. Normally we give you, we explain the problem and give you a proof of concept to demonstrate the exploit, you know, and then you patch it. And so I guess Google is taking the position, well, like, you know, hey, it's open source. Uh, If you want to fix it, show us the problem, give us the patch, and then we'll consider doing something with it, which again is is a different approach than we've seen before. So... I don't know. Uh, Isn't that uh, what security people do, though, is set a deadline? I mean, it's not unusual to say, to notify the company and say, hey, you know, yeah. Google uh, cited the, the user's right to know. And, of course, the issue is always that hackers are eventually going to find it. So yep. 
Uh, is 90 days typical? Well, I think the problem is the, 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 the particular demographic to which a very sophisticated device is being sold. That is, you know, um, all of these old Android phones are still in use by people who don't know about alternative browsers or right. that they're in trouble. And so we have, I mean, I heard saw the numbers, like 900-some million Android devices that now have browsers that are in use on the net that are riddled with holes. So essentially we've given you know innocent users very powerful smartphone, you know Android based smartphone devices that are connected and now very vulnerable that are never going to get fixed. Right. I'm sorry, I was talking about the Windows flaw. So the but the ah. Android flaw might be difficult to patch. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Google has the. I mean, Google could push a patch to the open source repository, but remember, these phones are generally patched by the carrier, not by Google. Right, right. And so, so you know, essentially, the the care. And so, I mean, we we have we have a fundamental problem, which is, you know, in the same way that we were talking about the manufacturers of routers, who are like, eh, we sold it, we got your money. Right. It's blue. It's a blue plastic box. Yep. Good luck to you. <laughs> Um, similarly, the carriers are like, hey, okay, you know, get a new phone. They don't you know? want to update, yeah, in many cases. Yeah, so, so, so I guess we have a Google problem. Could, now, it's just, it's in the browser, right? So Google Correct. could, well, Google does offer an alternative browser. The problem is getting the word out, I guess, right? Right. It, 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 it's, it's the, it's the built-in Android web view platform that has the problem. Google has switched now to a Chrome-based right. browser in Android, yeah. and so that's what they're loving and caring for and feeding. It's like, ah, that old stinky old browser, we're not, we're not going to deal with that. Well, I wouldn't so, assume that they don't have a patch for it. I just I don't know how they get it out to the millions of millions of people who have old versions of Android. Well, it's, yeah, and so, so I guess the, you have to, the it other It sounds part like you'd have this. to patch the whole operating system to fix it. It's not... Yeah, it's it's the browser built into the OS. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, so but conceptually, we're now entering a an interesting, as yet unexplored territory, where nearly a billion users have a sophisticated, vulnerable phone, which probably won't get fixed. Isn't it that analogous, pre- though, to I buy a machine? I mean, Google, uh, I'm sure all the phones that Google sold directly, the Nexus phones, will be patched if because Google patches those directly. But it isn't. Uh, it, not, it, not, not older phones, not built, not, uh, uh, you know, not before KitKat, as I understand oh, it. Oh, okay. So if They've I bought said a not- Galaxy Nexus from Samsung, there's no patch available uh, for it. Right. There's no way to and fix so, it. So, Right. And and so Google, so the Metasploit guy said, hey, here's all these things that right. we've just published. And Google said, yeah, well, we don't, you know, sorry, it's too old. We're not going to, we're not going to do anything about it. It's not as old so, as XP. <laughs> no, except that, um, uh, well, no, no, that's a, that, that, that's a good point. Though, again, the demographic is different. We have, you know, we, we have... 
It's not really. I mean, it, a lot of dumb Windows users too. I mean, I yeah, <laughs> I think it's just users. Yeah, so, so, so somehow the idea of just people not appreciating the power that they have in a cell phone and right. its ability to like it I mean it, it's fundamental ability to be compromised. I I I you know if we were to make a prediction on the podcast it's that we'll be hearing we'll, we'll be coming back to this topic. The idea that there are a billion unpatched vulnerable browsers in and in old android based cell phones. Yeah, I don't know, but see that's the thing is I don't know this is true of Windows XP as well. I don't know how how far is this company responsible for fixing it? I mean, they didn't. I mean, most of these are manufactured by companies other than Google that they use the free uh, open source system on it. Um, yeah, it's like saying, I mean, how do you? How uh, it's a tough one. I don't think it's a, it's immediately obvious no. What I, to do no, I'm it. not suggesting a solution. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. we have a it's problem. It's a problem. I agree. You know, yeah. Yeah. As as an industry, we're we're entering a new a new experiment here which is what happens with a billion cell phones with with known vulnerabilities and exploit kits yeah. um let's we're going to find out yeah thanks yeah um uh in the show notes i have a screen capture of the tweet that was posted to centcom's twitter account Oh, this uh, reading, <laughs> in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful, the cyber caliphate continues its cyber jihad. A uh, little embarrassing for U.S. Central Command to have their account hacked. Uh, and it's worth noting, you know, again, the press got a lot of mileage out of this. It's worth noting that this doesn't mean anything bad about the integrity of Central Command's network, this is Twitter that got hacked. And Twitter's getting hacked all the time. Now, multiple people probably have access to it. Who knows what the, you know, what the backstory is. Uh, Bad password, weak password. Somebody got their computer infected who was logging in. I mean, good, we just don't know. Um, It took them a while, though. And then they tweeted uh, about, uh, about a day ago, uh, U.S. Central Command is back. They said, we're back. CENTCOM temporarily suspended its Twitter account after an act of cyber vandalism. Read more. And then there's a link there in their tweet which basically says, yeah, so, you know, this wasn't us. This was so our social networks, uh, both Twitter and YouTube. I guess a bunch of uh, videos were posted in CENTCOM's name. To YouTube, I do have to point so, out that both services have second-factor authentication, which obviously CENTCOM is not using. No, Leo, that's too tricky. You know, that's that's for experts. But yeah. on the other hand, you 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 made the excellent point, which is a lot of people probably posted these social accounts, so it's very difficult to control that. Right. Uh, they they wrote from Tampa, Florida, in their note. They said earlier today, U.S. Central Command's Twitter and YouTube sites were compromised for approximately 30 minutes. These sites reside on commercial, non-Defense Department servers, and both sites have been temporarily taken offline while we look into the incident further. CENTCOM's operational military networks were not compromised, and there was no operational impact 
to U.S. Central Command. CENTCOM will restore service to its Twitter and YouTube accounts as quickly as possible. We are viewing this purely as a case of cyber vandalism, which I guess, you know, is the term now. That's what uh, Obama called that Sony hack, right? Was that a, yeah, He used the term yeah, cyber vandalism, vandalism yeah. in his, in his pre-Christmas, uh, his final uh, news conference of the year last year. So cyber vandalism, okay. Finally, <clears throat> I think I'd like you to play this 60-second video uh, into the podcast, All right. if that's possible. Absolutely. The lovely and talented David Cameron. Mm-hmm. Let me just turn on my audio so you can see it. It says a brain. What is this? A brain living within its means? Do we want to... Let me go back to the beginning. In our country... Do we want to allow a means of communication Britain. between people which even in extremists with a signed warrant from the Home Secretary personally that we cannot read? Yes. Now, up until now, governments of this country have said, no, we must not have such a means of communication. That is why, in extremists, it's been possible to read someone's letter. That is why, in extremists, it's been possible to listen in to someone's telephone call. That is why the same applies with mobile communications. Let me stress again, this cannot happen unless the Home Secretary personally signs a warrant. We have a better system for safeguarding this uh -huh. very intrusive power than probably any other country I can think of. Yes, because but the question remains, are we going to allow nice a means of communication where it simply isn't possible to do that? And my answer to that question is, no, we must not. The first duty of any government is to keep our country and our people safe. <sighs> so Cameron said, we must not allow terrorists safe space to communicate with each other. And he, so he he's promised a comprehensive piece of legislation to close the safe spaces, as he puts it, used by suspected terrorists to communicate online with each other. By the way, we should point out that the British government does, in fact, have secure communications. And nobody's yeah. proposing there be a backdoor in that. Correct. And he said he recognized such powers were, quote, very intrusive, but he believed that they were justified to counter the growing threat to the UK as long as proper legal safeguards were in place. And... Uh, essentially, what he's saying is we are not going to permit encrypted communications that we are not able to eavesdrop on, meaning uh, that trust no one, you know, TNO connections like WhatsApp offers, like iMessage and FaceTime both offer, uh, would be or could be banned under new surveillance plans. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the press has picked it up saying in the wake of the Paris attacks, Prime Minister wants to ban encryption that government can't read in extreme situations. And, of course, this whole notion of in extremists that he keeps talking about, well, that just means there's a way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be really, really important. It just, you know, if you, you either can or you can't. So... Oh, Leo. <laughs> I, I mean, I really, 
I don't. I, I'm worried about the future. I, I don't. I don't worry at all. First of all, really? Yeah. Here's I'll cut. Here's a couple of reasons. First of all, we don't know if he's actually going to try to get this in, enacted into law, and you you can see already there'll be a lot of opposition if he does. Let's say he does. Yes. Remember, the U.S. government forbade uh, strong encryption export. Didn't stop it. Um, it'd be very difficult for the British government unilaterally to prevent people from using strong encryption. Uh, I, I just don't think that they can do it. It's not enforceable. Are they going to throw okay, everybody so, in jail who does? Well, they can they can uh, outlaw commercial products which provide strong encryption. They should because those aren't really strong encryption. They don't. They and by the way, they won't outlaw those because they just go to Microsoft and others and say, "Hey, put a backdoor in," and it's done. It's the it's the open source non commercial software that, as usual. Is going to be very hard for them to stop. Okay, I guess we're sort of talking at cross purposes. Well, I mean, WhatsApp, yeah, we, we, you know, WhatsApp may be dead, but who cares? Okay, Text what about secure. iMessage? So, so iMessage cares? will be re-engineered. Text Secure okay. is not going to be re-engineered and will be available in Great Britain, no matter what they do. Okay, okay so... Oh, okay. See what I'm saying? So, yeah, maybe yeah. they will... Maybe, But, frankly, do you trust iMessage now? Well, no, we know that it's possible <laughs> so what, for, then? <laughs> for Apple to, to right. provide the keys. Commercial right? companies, uh, we have, I think, said pretty consistently, you cannot be sure that they are already putting in a back door, regardless of the law. Okay, so... And in fact, I, we, would, we, I would submit that the U.S. law does already have this feature. That's why you stopped doing your crypto solution, because they can write an No, I, I, I anticipated that, right. they, that we were going to have a law come out. But we that already said, do. It's called the Patriot Act. They can go to anybody and say, you need to put a back door in this. Already, right? In the U.S., don't they? With an no. NLS? No? No. No. They're able, so. to, they're able to say, give us what you have. And so the companies are now saying, we're happy to. Because we no longer hold the keys. So right. that's what Apple says. That's what Google says. Right. We no longer, we have re-engineered our systems uh, in over the course of 2014 so that we no longer have the keys. So you're welcome to this blob of noise. Good luck because it well, won't help you. Good. And I'm not sure I fully credit that. So if, you're, if you want to be secure and if you're a bad guy, you don't use iMessage. <laughs> Right. <laughs> You'd be nuts to use iMessage or messages, as right. they call it. Uh, but, there, but so the real question is, okay, so the British government may, may, may do this, making explicit what's probably been going on behind the scenes all along. Um, but does this thwart open source solutions like Text Secure? Um, it outlaws them so that Un we can I, I would say it, unenforceably. Right, but still, it out uh, it outlaws them. So, so potentially, you're then committing a crime if you employ strong encryption for your own non-terrorist activities, because the government has said strong encryption is no longer legal. You you cannot you cannot communicate in a way that we're unable to intercept. To me, that's a profound change yeah, in the not, world. It's not good. I'm not saying that. But I don't I think it's unenforceable. I don't care. It's profound. <laughs> it's wrong. I mean, 
You're yeah. you're a criminal. You're a criminal if you employ strong encryption. That's profound. Yeah. I mean, well, you I'd know. like to see them arrest, you know, 10% of the British population. That's the other thing. You can make a law. If it's widely uh, ignored, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, I do notice a lot of people on the freeway going faster than 55. <laughs> there are a lot of laws or, in the world. At yeah, 65. <laughs> yeah. If they're widely ignored, you can't arrest your population. I would anticipate uh, some strong civil disobedience in the UK if this were to be passed. I think Cameron knows that too, but we'll see. You know, maybe, maybe not. Well, you know, I, I'm and the UK doesn't affect me because I'm in the US, and well, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Because, of course, if WhatsApp is illegal in the UK, it makes it difficult to, you know, I mean that can spread. Right. Well, I yeah, yeah. exactly. And 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 somebody in the chat room says, "What about HTTPS?" Jeff is in London, so he has an interest in this. Uh, do you ban HTTPS? Is SSL banned? And which vendor do you go to to get the back door? Yeah. I think it's hard. I, I think it's very hard to make this happen. But maybe, but you're right. We should, we should uh, call we'll attention be watching. to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I do have good news. <laughs> Uh, before we start talking about Enigma, something that is not an Enigma is Spinrite. Uh, I got a nice note on the 8th of January from uh, someone who signed it, J.S. Cube. He was, he, I just know that his email was, he's in Shaw. Uh, Shaw is his ISP in Canada. And he said, he said, hello, GRC peeps. This is not a query, but a testimonial. I wanted to leave one on your site, but I couldn't find a link to do so. That's true. We really don't have one. He said, you may not care, but I'd like to leave a testimonial anyway. And of course, I'm more than happy to have a testimonial from JS Cube. He said, I had an old but working hard drive that had bad sectors in it, which made it fail any previous attempts to clone it. Your product was my last resort, and it saved me a lot, in all caps, of time reloading everything into my new SSD. I was able to clone my old hard drive, no problem. I'm sure you hear this all the time. Thanks, with three exclamation points. And he says, I love your product. It's F at sign at sign N apostrophe <laughs> awesome. Freaking awesome. <laughs> Freaking awesome. Best regards, JSC. So... <laughs> Thank you, JSQ. I don't think you're awesome. a pod. I don't think you're a podcast watcher, but I'm happy that you're a Spinrite user. Oh, so, so this he didn't know about security now. I don't think so. He sent this to the GRC peeps, and uh, it came to me via Sue. So can there be anybody who does not know about security <laughs> now? How is that possible? Um, you know what else we like? We like Harry's. You like? Harry's. Oh boy, I'm yes. Jenny will be feeling my face before long. <laughs> and it's, I, I shave during Mac Break Weekly. You were talking about Harry's oh, while I was running the blade over my... Interesting. Boy, it's just amazingly smooth. And, you know, it's for you then that Harry's wrote this slogan, be the smartest man in the bathroom. Harry's, a great shave at a fraction of the price. Harry's has some really nice shave kits. It's funny because I use the Winston, which is the 
little pricier at $25 shave kit with a metal <laughs> yes. handle in the engraving. But uh, Steve, who we sent him a Winston, you ended up order, ordering the uh, Truman because you like the, the plastic handle that has a flat side so you know exactly what the yeah, orientation I, is. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's warmer and it has – it's not a cylinder. It's, as you said, yes, it's, it's irregular. So I have a sort of a better sense of orientation. Yeah. Well – Either way, you can go to harrys.com right now and uh, and find out why we love Harry's so much. The The problem is, that the Harry's is fixing is the fact that razors are too expensive. And, of course, that's because companies – it's it's so true that it's become a saying. They yes. uh, give away the razor to make it up on the blades. That's why uh, you could spend as much as $4 a blade on a Fusion uh, blade, and I had been thinking there was no other choice until I found Harry's. Harry's makes their own blades in their factory in Germany, which means you get the best blades. They actually bought uh, one of the two factories famous for making great steel razor blades, and they engineer them for sharpness, performance. They cut no corners, and yet because they sell direct to you, you pay less, about, you know, about a quarter of uh, or half what you pay for one of those fancy drugstore blades. And then they ship them for free right to your door. Harry's. Each kit comes with a razor with a beautiful handle. You you choose. Um, Three razor blades and the incredibly nice foaming shave gel. They do have a shave cream, which actually is what I use. Do you you like the gel or the the cream better? I'm a gel user. I like that a lot. See, there you go. So you get your choice. Um, And uh, so that's a great deal. $15 for the Truman. And that comes in four colors. Twenty-five dollars for the metal blade, metal-handled Winston, including the three blades. Oh, and let's not forget—they don't show it in the uh, the picture, but I really the like cover. It. Yeah, the, the cover, the travel cover is so great because I don't know, I I don't know why I'm fixated on this. I just love it because you put it in your dop kit and it's and it dries out, but it saves you from getting your fingers cut. It's just a really nice little thing. Anyway, you get that. And $5 off when you use the offer code security now at checkout. So that means $10 for the Truman set. That is a great deal. And then, of course, you can subscribe to get Harry's Blades, Harry's Foaming Shave Cream, or the Shave Cream in the Tube. And as an afterthought, you might want to pick up the Harry's Aftershave Lotion, which smells great and, and refreshes and moisturizes your skin after the shave. Harry's, it gives you the cleanest, closest, most comfortable shave you've ever had. We stand by it, and so does Harry's. Steve and I love our Harry's. And I, and I have to say, you know, since they've been a sponsor, and I've talked about it, I see my own Twitter feed. Oh, it's yeah. like, you know, one by one, people are saying, oh, I'm going to give that a try. And they come back and they say, oh, my Lord, <laughs> I've tried them all. This is the one. So it's the real deal, folks. Check it out. $5 off your first purchase when you go to H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, harrys.com, and use the offer code security now at checkout. All right. I, By the way, uh, one of our uh, chatters sent me a link to a Guardian article about uh, the, in, the uh, imitation game in which they go through step-by-step the historical errors or mistakes. Ah. Or, and there's quite a few. I know. Um, so uh, I'm going to take it back that it's historically accurate. In fact, in some in some respects, it's uh, appallingly inaccurate and insulting, uh, yeah. insultingly <laughs> However, a great movie. And you know what? Movies have to be movies, not life. And so that's what happens. Right. Right. I, I, as I said, it's a great movie. And I would say it's based on historically accurate characters. 
and I, I it would be nice to have really like had a really good sense for who Alan was. Well, they you know, give exactly his, they give as an his example that, and I don't want to do a spoiler, but Turing at one point was blackmailed by a spy. And this never happened. And the Guardian says it paints Turing as a coward. Correct. As a traitor, actually. As a traitor and a coward. And it never yeah. happened. And so, um, you know, they should... I understand from the story movie tellers point of view, the purpose of that engagement right. was to show how scared and, and, and lonely and, uh, you know, persecuted homosexuals were in, in the Britain of that era. But... Right. Um, Still, it didn't happen, and so and it, well. You know. And for example, I I mentioned when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, the other thing that 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 annoyed me was this completely artificial midnight deadline, right? Um, where all the work they had done would be scrapped if, if on the stroke of midnight. It's like, uh, no, <laughs> that's not true. Seemed pretty stupid, uh, you know, on the face of it, on the part of the uh, the commandant of uh, right. Letchley Park, um, but. So do uh, you know what uh, this? Uh, just search for the imitation game at the Guardian, um, inventing a new slander to insult Alan Turing. It's theguardian.com, and you know you can enjoy the movie, but it's a good idea to understand some of it is just completely ridiculous. What I did read of his character uh, was that while he he did sort of have, for whatever reason, some aloofness to him, whether just you know a, a, essentially a, a, a social disability. Um, he did understand humor, and if he liked you, you sort of got moved into his inner circle, then he could be quite charming. So, you know, he, 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 that's not quite the person that the movie painted. Yeah. So here's the way this whole thing actually the, – the, the, the history is really interesting too. So we, we can have the story, which is not historically accurate, but the good news is the truth – is every bit as interesting. So um, radio was the way that we were communicating, we, everybody, on the, on the you know, in wars. World War I had radio. And the problem with radio is that you, one person sends it and everybody can receive it. So... You know, eavesdropping is sort of what you do. I mean, and there were like listening stations all over the place specifically for receiving what anybody else transmitted. Um, toward the end of World War I, um, Germany believed up until they found out otherwise that they had a an uncrackable crypto during World War One, that was protecting them. And they were apparently quite annoyed to learn after the end of World War One that, in fact, their unbreakable crypto, which was not the Enigma machine. This, the Enigma machine was World War Two, So the First World War, um, everybody had cracked the German uncrackable code and was merrily decrypting their messages and, you know, so they, they had actually, you know, no protection at all, and, and they were convinced their code was uncrackable. So they essentially decided not to make the same mistake for World War II. Now, what's interesting 
is that shortly after the First World War, that is, you know, well before the beginning of the Second World War, a German inventor by the name of Arthur uh, 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 Sherbius, Sherbius invented and developed and patented the Enigma machine. So wow. this, this wasn't something that the German military or the German war machine created. This was a commercial product. Not many of them sold because the number that I saw in, in one, one uh, relating that I read said that it was $30,000. Now, I, I assume that's translated into t- today's money. But he was trying to, I mean, the, the, the point was that communications was like by courier. You would write a letter and then you'd send it somewhere. So he was trying to sell it to companies, corporations that needed to keep their communications secret. Wow. But it wasn't very successful because the darn thing was very complicated and, I mean, beautifully engineered, you know, so-called German engineering, um, just works of, of art, but way expensive. So the the other thing that is worth noting is that simultaneously pretty much around the world these so-called um uh rotor-based enciphering machines came into existence. So there was, you know, co-invention as often happens. It was just sort of, you know, it was sort of time for these code wheel machines to happen. And so Arthur's was named his the Enigma. It was the machine that the that the German military then adopted. Um, but there were others that, that operated, you know, in, in similar but different fashion. Um, the, the sandwiched in between um Russia on one side and Germany on the other is Poland. And they were nervous because, well, they had Germany on one side and Russia on the other. And, and so they had a, a very active cipher bureau, as they called it, who, uh, whose job it was to decrypt the messages that they were able to catch out of the air in order to know what the Russians were thinking about their border and what the Germans were thinking about their border, um, and and these and and the the crypto bureau in Poland did something that, as far as we know, other um, code breakers hadn't yet, and that is they employed real mathematicians. They didn't sort of employ puzzle solvers. They they employed uh, a, a trio of, of of very good Polish mathematicians who who applied everything that they knew about math to this problem, and in the space between uh, World War One and World War Two, they were you know keeping an eye on things, decrypting messages, and things were fine. Then Germany began purchasing and using Arthur's Enigma machine. And the 
Polish mathematicians started having a problem. They started receiving a new type of cipher over the radio that they could not crack. And so um, this represented a problem because, again, they needed to know as, as best they could for, their, for the sake of their country what Germany was doing on the border that they share and what plans Germany had. So, so there, was, there was a traitor who provided some documents which they were able to get a hold of, um, but mostly it was truly inspired reverse engineering. Um, we'll talk about the, the – you'll get a sense, a better sense for that when I explain how the Enigma machine works and what its pieces are. But it turns out that that although they had almost no useful information, these the the Polish mathematicians were able to reverse engineer the complete design of the Enigma machine based on the code. That is, looking at what it encrypted and figuring out what the plain text was. And then thus what the wiring had to be. And you'll have a much better sense for what an amazing piece of reverse engineering that was when I talk about how, how this thing works. They built clones of the Enigma machine from their reverse engineering. And they also built the first so-called Bomba or bomb. Um, and they're, they're conflicting stories about why it was named that one one report said that it was it made a ticking sound like a bomb that was going to go off and of course bombs were on everyone's mind at that period of time uh with all of these hostilities mounting uh the other was that it was the name like one of the polish mathematicians favorite uh ice cream it was named it's after dessert, that yeah. so yeah so we're not sure um where where the name came from, but they were able to take advantage of a crucial flaw in the protocol, that is the instructions that the Enigma operators used, that I'll talk about in a second, in order to create a machine that was able to figure out essentially crack Enigma. And again, we'll talk about what that is. But so so that's the history of this. Then uh, at, at some point the what the what germany was doing changed and just before the outbreak of world war ii they met with british intelligence uh i think uh, the brits and the french and showed them what they had now both french and um and english cryptographers at that point were completely mystified, completely befuddled. This is before Alan Turing's uh, time. So so they had no idea what was going on. And when these three Polish mathematicians said, uh, here's what's going on. I mean, apparently, in, in, in one recounting of this, one of the British uh, agents had a fit because he was so upset that there was this much, this trove of information about 
what Germany was doing that the Poles had not until then chosen to share. And it, I mean, it was crucial. It was Enigma machines they had reverse working, Enigma machines that they had figured out from decrypting. And, oh, look, here's this thing we, we built that's called a bomb, and it decrypts the, uh, the, the, the code. Or at least it did until shortly before then. So, okay, so now we switch to Bletchley Park. And um, and the effort to decrypt what Germany did, and I'll talk about what the how, what the change in protocol was that in, that essentially what happened was the 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 Polish mathematicians were using a trick that Alan Turing and his group didn't think was reliable. That is, it was about it was about a procedural, uh, uh, a a procedure in setting up the code that Turing and his group realized the Germans could too easily change. And while it made cracking easy, it was deemed too fragile. And in fact, on May first of nineteen forty, Germany did change their procedure, and the Polish approach for cracking Enigma completely collapsed. So it turned out in retrospect to have been exactly the right call, even though what, even though what, what Alan and his group ended up having to build was far more complex. Okay, so what is this Enigma machine? Um, um, we start with a keyboard with 26 keys. So just the alphabet, A through Z, no upper lowercase, no numbers, punctuation, not even a space. Um, the idea being that if it's converted into your language, you know, back into German, even though it'd be happy, I mean, it'd be nice to have spaces, you know, this is military and you could figure out wh what the words are by looking at it closely. Um, they did sometimes use the character X in order to indicate the end of a sentence, just because X was uncommon and that would sort of give you a, a, a clue. Um, the way they handled numbers, I saw one report that said they were spelled out, and that's incorrect, actually. Um, they would use the prefix character Y, and then above the top row of keys, you know, Q-W-E-R-T. It, it, it actually wasn't QWERTY. It was QWERTZ, um, a, a slightly uh, changed uh, key arrangement, but basically, you know, the, the typewriter that, that we're familiar with. Along the top row uh, were nine keys. So those were numbered one through nine. And then P was down below. That was given the designation of zero. And so if you wanted to send a number like 1940, you'd, you'd send a Y and then a series of alphabetic characters, each corresponding to a digit. And that way, somebody reading it would see a Y and then something that doesn't make any sense at all and realize, oh, this is a number. So basically what we're sending is 26 symbols. And um, each one of those keys 
is connected to a wire that goes into what's called the scrambler. Um, and, and there's a an, an intermediate stage I'll come back to in a second, which is the plug board, uh, which exists on the front of it. But let's sort of take this step by step. So you've got 26 keys, like buttons, and each one energizes a wire. The wire, the, those so those 26 wires go over to a a circular array of contacts. So we have a, a circular array of 26, I'm sure they were beautiful brass contacts. Um, we then have a series of what were called rotors. Um, think of the rotor like a hockey puck. So, and it's about, it's about four inches in diameter and about an inch thick. So, you know, kind of hockey puck-like. And this hockey puck, this rotor, has a similar set of 26 contacts on one face and 26 spring-loaded pins on the other. So this hockey puck has connections on one side and pins for connecting to the next hockey puck in a stack. Inside this rotor, this hockey puck, one side of the these 26 connections are cross-connected like on one on one face, one face of these 26 connections are cross-connected one for one but in a completely haphazard fashion to the other side. So all 26, there's like wires inside and they just, it's, it's a maze of craziness inside as every wire from one face goes over to a different connector on the other face. So it's called a scrambler because it scrambles all of the, in fact, Leo, the picture down below on the page below that, that you're showing right now is, is a slightly better one. Oh, are those my notes? No, but the... No, okay. Uh, in in, in my find, notes, I'll I have a better a picture. picture. All right, good. Yeah. Anyway, so, so, they, so the original machine had, had three of these rotors that, it was, that would be inserted in the machine at any one time from a set of five. So there was a set of there was a set of five that were designated with Roman numerals, you know, one Roman numeral two, Roman numeral three, Roman numeral four, Roman numeral five. Um, and so so the part of the configuration of this Enigma machine was choosing from one of five for the leftmost rotor, one of the remaining four for the middle rotor, and one of the remaining three, for the rightmost rotor, and there were 60 different ways, five times four times three, 60 different ways to set up the, basically to choose the stack of rotors which would be used. And so to make sure everyone understands this, what we have is we have from the keyboard, as you press a key, one of 26 wires is is electrified and that 
successively moves through each of these three rotors going in one location, essentially emerging in a completely different location where it then connects to the rotor to its left going in that rotor and emerging in a different location where it then connects to the right to the leftmost rotor going in it and coming out on the other side so so these are rotors because as the name implies they can rotate um and and this is part of the magic of enigma now we've got on the as this comes out on the left hand side of this stack we now have 26 connections what are we going to do with those well what was very clever was what the, what Arthur designed, but it was also one of the several fatal flaws in the design, and that is that the the final stage to the left was called the reflector. It too had twenty six connections to match the twenty six connections coming out of the left hand side of the leftmost rotor. And its 26 connections were connected again in a haphazard fashion to others. So that is to say it had 13 wires with each end connecting a pair of the, the connectors on its face. Thus, it reflected the electricity, the, 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 the current would go in one of its 26 connectors having been well scrambled on its journey through the from right to left through these three rotors then it would emerge from a different one of the 26 and make its way back through the same stack of rotors back to the right whereupon one of 26 lights would be illuminated. So now you get a sense for this. What this so you press a button and the and electric current flows through one of 26 wires through these three the the the, the stack of three rotors which internally each are scrambly and they get they when it finally emerges it is sent back based on this reflector, through the scramble again to emerge. And that current then lights one of 26 lights. So basically, that is um, sort of a, a static picture of Enigma, which means that as you were to press, as you're pressing buttons, very difficult to predict lights are lighting up. But there are, there's one interesting characteristic of this design, which I referred to as a fatal flaw. And that is, you'll note that there's no way a letter can ever encode to itself. That is, if you press T and one of those 26 wires happens, nothing that can happen in there is able to send the current back out the same wire it came in. Well, that was very clever 
because it allowed this it allowed for a simplification of the design but it was cryptographically a flaw because it gave a big clue to decrypting this no letter could ever encode to itself now the other thing we have at this point is not something very complicated that is what well, essentially we've we've gone to a huge amount of effort to create a very simple substitution cipher which is you know and we've talked about those before if you if you know like the the encoder ring you take the alphabet a through z and then you you um you could put below it randomly a like randomly arranged characters a through z now you look up the the plain text on the top row and and the the corresponding cipher text is on the row below so that's a substitution cipher we know that they're not difficult to crack because if you know anything about the language which the plain text is written in you a, a simple frequency analysis of enough cipher text will quickly identify the letters that are most common, the letters that are least common. You can then start making guesses about the ones in between based on your knowledge of the language, and it's easy to crack. So um, so that's called an alphabetic cipher. What we want is a polyalphabetic cipher, that is one where the 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 mapping between the plain text and the cipher text is continually changing. And that's the first brilliant part of the enigma. And that is when you press that key, whatever key you're wanting to encrypt, not only does an electric signal go to one of 26 contacts to begin making its way through, but the act of pressing the key rotates in the in the sort of the manner of an odometer it rotates the rightmost rotor to its next position it steps it through one of 26 steps and there is a there's a a movable ring on the left hand side of that right hand rotor it's it's also known as the fast rotor because it turns the fastest in a in sort of an odometer sense that that this repositionable ring can be also in any of 26 settings and there's a notch in it which determines at which position of the of the fastest rightmost rotor a cam will drop allowing the second that is the middle rotor and it's called the middle rotor to then step so you have a situation where once every time around uh, with the fastest rotor the second one will then engage and it'll advance and when that happens is set by a, a movable ring on the face of that fastest rotor. And similarly, the middle rotor has a ring also, which determines when the leftmost rotor rotates. And then there's one extra little uh, kink, which uh, causes the machine not to operate 
exactly like an odometer, which there, which is that some of these cams can multiply engage and rotate um, more than one wheel in some circumstances. So it's a it, it's a little trickier than just that. But but the concept is every single and this is the key every single time you encrypt a character the cipher changes the the rotor steps to its next position completely changing the scrambling that is the mapping between the a through z character set to a very different a through z character set and thanks to the fact that you've got multiple rotors the mapping is complex and it does not repeat. Now, the Germans understood that some information was leaking, and so they limited the length of the messages sent with Enigma to about 250 characters. They understood that, you know, if this thing ever did repeat, then that would create a cryptographic opportunity, which they wanted to prevent. So now there's one last port that one last part of this and that is there was a plug board on the front of the machine so 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 before i leave we have the notion of from a set of five rotors you choose three and you you choose what order they're going to be in then you choose also the starting position of each of those so you dial those to a starting position where the message begins as as the settings. Then finally, this plug board, that intercepts the, the signal going between the keyboard and lights and the scrambler stack and performs a static swap. So if you, with this plug board, you, you plug one into T and one into W, for example, then if you if you didn't have that in place and you press T or W, the signal would go directly through to the T or W wires at the beginning of the scrambler stack. But with a with a with a, the plug board cable plugged into the T and the W holes, they were exchanged. So this was both the keyboard and the lights had their wires swapped. So T would become W and W would become T. And it turns out that um, that the Germans felt that this provided a ridiculously large number of connections. The, the Enigma machine had 10 wires that could be plugged into any of 20 of the 26 available holes in this plug board. Now, it's interesting, too, because you might think, well, wait a minute, you know, why not 13 cables because there are 26 holes? It turns out that's actually less secure. If you have 13 wires, um, there are fewer combinations than if you only have, actually, the optimal is 11. That's clever. Yes, yeah, for some reason, German the 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 the, um, the Germans chose ten wires. Maybe you know one broke at the beginning, and they they stayed with ten, or they thought ten was an easier number. There's a slightly better to use eleven, but then 
12 gets worse, and 13 actually is redundant because if you have 12, there's only two left open. And so <laughs> you know that those are going to get swapped because there's no other choice. Okay, so we end up with lots of lots of combinations. We have, we, I talked about how we have 60 different arrangements of the rotors. Then um, we have the rings, which, which on the rightmost rotor and the middle rotor give 26 settings each. There, is a, there actually was a ring on the third rotor because that third rotor might be in a different location, but it had no, no practical effect because there was nobody for, its, for that, its ring to control the rotation of. So, so that is 26 times 26, which is 676 possible combinations of two 26-position rings. Then we have the initial rotor settings. Each rotor, A through Z, it, it could have its initial setting set. So that's 26 times 26 times 26. It's just 17,576 possible starting positions for the rotor stack. The plug board, oh my Lord, um, th- that had by far the most complexity of all on the order of, let's see, what is this number I'm looking at? It's 150,738 billion. And I didn't leave, I just, I, I have it here in front, in, in the notes, but I made a ridiculous number of possible ways of swapping letters. So altogether, 60 times 17,576 times 676 times the plug board combinations. Um, ends up with about 1 times 10 to the 23rd possible combinations, which is in English is 100, 100 sextillion or 100,000 billion billion combinations. And, I mean, think about that. From a simple mechanical device back in World War II era. I mean, just incredible crypto and, and, and very, very clever. Basically, a polyalphabetic cipher, which could be set to an initial condition with a vast number of combinations, and every single character you enter changes the alphabetic mapping from plain text to cipher text in a very complex way that never repeats during the course of your sending even a very long message. What, 26 times 26 times 26, 600, and, no, that's that 17,576 number. Um, it, was a, it was slightly less than that because you could have multiple rotors changing at the same time, so it would, it would the rotor positions would come back to home, uh, but still Germany never sent more than 250 characters in a single message, so they prevented you know uh, disclosing too much information at once. So the way this operated in practice, so I, I should also mention that what this was, this was a system. It was a, a classic keyed 
cipher. We've talked about, obviously, keying ciphers. The, the concept of a keyed cipher is that even if you know everything there is to know about the design of the cipher, that still doesn't weaken it. In, in this case, actually, it does a little bit. But, but, but the theory is that it's the key that matters. You can completely disclose the, the, the cipher mechanism itself and your, your privacy of what you encrypt remains intact. And we know of, of stories through the course of World War II where U-boats would get um, sunk and people would go down and recover the Enigma machine from it. Or they would pull the crew off the U-boat and, and the scuttling charges hadn't gone off yet or f- failed and again, they'd pull an Enigma off. So, so the Allies had Enigma machines. They, you know, we weren't limited to the to, to the ones that the that the Polish mathematicians reverse engineered. But having the machine didn't help us that much because it was a keyed cipher. What we needed was the key. So, every, what 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 the Germans created was a code book uh, not of the cipher but of the key and th- they they would they would arrange to get the code books to everyone who had enigma machines the the book had a long enough life 3 months was what i encountered in my research it had 3 months of codes of of, of enigma machine settings by day so on a given day by month and date, the Enigma operators would look up the rotor order. So, so, so this was settings for the day. So you would grab the number four rotor and the number one rotor and the number five rotor in that sequence to build your stack and then insert that and lock it into the Enigma machine. Oh, but before doing that, you would set the rings on the rotors, on, on two of the rotors, to, you know, 23 and 2. Some of the rotors were numbered 1 through 26. The other ones had uh, A through Z on them. I think they felt that numbers would be clearer just so as not to confuse uh, the other instances where letters were being used. Um, so you, you, you'd set the rings on two of the rotors insert and lock down the stack then you would the code book would had letter pairings a for example a r k t w m l c x d and so forth 10 pairs of letters which you um, were the plugboard settings so you would take your 10 plugboard cables and plug them into those letter pairs in order to perform the 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 static swaps between the alphabetic keys and lights and the the uh, substitution cipher stack. And finally, the last piece of information in the codebook was the starting positions of the rotors, like TXM. So you would dial those three um, uh numbers or, or sorry, uh, letters of the alphabet. So that they showed through little windows in, in the front of the machine and now you were ready. So, um, 
So that would be the setting for the day. Then the instructions to the operator were come up with three letters at random. We need, so we have, that's the per day key. And we already know how many combinations there are of those, a ton. So now the operator comes up with three letters at random, which they, which the operator enters into the machine and gets three cryptographic letters out. Then he does the same thing a second time and is going to get a different three. Because remember, every time you put a letter in, the cipher changes. It advances the, the rotors from the right one, which is turning fastest, on down to the middle and the, the left one. So you're going to get, even though you put the same three characters in a second time, you get three different outputs. That is used to prefix the, the message that is sent. And, um, uh, and, then the, and then the operator sets the wheels back to the, the, the random setting of the three that he chose and then encodes the message. So essentially we have, we have a day based on the code book and then we have a, we have a per message encryption based on three random letters which are which the operator prefixes the transmission to now one thing i didn't say which uh may be obvious from the design but this is the other very cool thing remember i said that that reflector represented a a flaw in the design because no character could encode to itself but the the motivation for that was extremely cool and that is think about it if you say that you press t and the wires run through in both directions and come out q and light up the q light well similarly if without changing the rotors you pressed q the electricity is going to go in the Q wire and come out the T wire, which is to say that the Enigma machine is is uh, creates a mirror image. That is, all you do to decipher a message is set up the exact same conditions as was used to encipher the message because the the cipher text will generate the plain text in a mirror image of the plain text that generated the cipher text. So they're on, on the receiving side, they've got the same code book. They initialize their machine at the, at, in, in the morning with the same settings. And then over the radio, they receive a message. The, they're, they're going to receive the... Um, that those first three letters, which are the transmitting operator's randomly chosen setting for the message, they'll decrypt it and they'll receive the three the, the original three letters that the operator sent. Then they're going to get three different letters 
which are is the re-encryption that second time of the same first three letters, and they should get the same three plain text out. So that was a verification. Unfortunately, it was also a huge weakness, and it was it was exactly that protocol. The fact that the same three randomly chosen letters were sent twice that allowed the very skilled mathematicians in Poland to crack Enigma initially. Just knowing that, they were able to, they were able to analyze enough messages in order to reverse engineer the entire complement of rotors, all the scrambly stuff going on inside, and build themselves an Enigma, which frankly is an astonishing feat. The problem is Germany stopped on May 1st, 1940, stopped the practice of duplicating those first three letters. And at that, in, at, at that and, and they made some other changes and that completely broke the, the, the Polish cryptographer's solution. And it was, it was that characteristic that Turing and his group understood was too fragile. So they never based their decryption on on that on the assumption that the Germans would always be doing something that could be so easily changed, and in fact, that was the right choice to make because Germany ended up um, no longer prefixing with that. Basically, it was unnecessary for them to do it. So, um, so, so that is how Enigma works. Um, later. Uh, and and the Enigma machine design did evolve over the cor- over the course of World War II. Um, we went from five rotors, and uh, from which three were chosen, to eight rotors from which four were chosen. So we got more more rotors and a fourth rotor in, in like a next generation design. Um, but otherwise, that was the system uh, that functioned. So, in order to crack this, what th- there were there were a number of of interesting clues that came out of this. The fact that the Enigma machine could not encrypt a character to itself was crucial, because what. What, what Turing and his, gr- and his group realized, and we did see this in the movie, was that if they, if they knew some of the text that was, that was the, that is some of the plain text that had been encrypted, that gave them a clue. And in classic cryptography, this is known today as a, as a, as a, a known plain text attack. They couldn't choose the plain text to encrypt, but th- but they were but they knew what it was. For example, the German messages were often um, tr- uh, signed essentially, or 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 ended in, in a Heil Hitler, or one of the most reliable first thing in the day broadcasts was the weather. The weather from 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 certain locations, certain stations was broadcast, and the that broadcast had a heavily uh, scripted, repeated format. So they were able to, in fact, it began with the phrase weather report. So they knew 
the German for weather report at the beginning of the broadcast. They knew when it was going to be sent, and the Germans, if nothing, were very punctual. So the punctuality of that, because they also had the time and date that, that, that was in the message. So those, So that gave them a chunk of stuff that they knew. So they would take that plain text and write it out and then lay out the cipher text of the weather report. Now, one thing that they knew was that there was, there by nature of the design of the Enigma machine, no letter could encode to itself. Well, if you have enough plain text and enough cipher text and only an alphabet of 26, you, it turns out there are lots of collisions. That is, lots of places where somewhere in either of those strings, the same character will be above and below. Well, you know then that that's the wrong alignment of the plain text with a cipher text. So you shift it over one. Now three other places collide. Whoops, that's impossible. You shift it over again. Oh, there's, there's nope, two places collide now. Okay, that can't be it. So you shift it again. So basically they would shift it until they would find a setting that is just an alignment of cipher text and plain text that didn't break that one simple rule that the text could not encipher to itself. Now, if you think about the design of the machine, it didn't have to have a reflector. The reflector was convenient, but if instead those 26 wires came out of the left-hand side and went to light bulbs, then you would have encryption without reflection and letters could encrypt to themselves. And the number one most useful hint would have been lost. It's true that then decrypting wouldn't have been a symmetric operation as it was the way that the machine was cleverly designed. You would have to arrange to swap the wires for, you know, the input and output wires so that you were, you were basically sending in on the left and coming out on the right rather than always, you know, rather than doing both over on the right-hand side. But that could have been done and would have made a vastly stronger, though slightly more complex and less easy-to-use system. As it turns out, that was the Achilles' heel. The fact that they were able to eliminate so many possible um, ciphertext and plain text mappings simply because the same character could not encrypt to itself. That created a a ciphertext and plain text test. Now, the way this crazy machine that we the, the Bombas operated that Turing and his group designed and built was essentially it found many other and, and rejected many other impossibilities. What the what the machine was trying to do was it was trying to determine the day's settings from one or more captured pieces of crypto for which they could guess the plain text. And, <coughs> and in looking at the design, I decided, okay, I'm not going to be able to explain it because it is really, I mean, this is why Turing was a genius. This thing, and to have built this in the technology of the era, 
basically with wires and rotating cams and, you know, contact, I mean, like no electronics, basic electricity. And and he was able to come up with a, with a system which would test and reject possible settings of the of, of the enigma machine because it turns out that the more you think about it when you think about this network of wires not only can a, and a can a character not encrypt to itself that's the most obvious and easy observation turns out when you when you sit down with a pencil and a lot of paper many other impossibilities fall out and so it was very it was possible to to automate the process which is what Turing did of rejecting almost all daily settings or 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 potential settings for the day and then when this thing would stop that there would be a based on the limited input it would be a possible setting for a enigma machine they would then run over see if it made you know impose that setting see if it made sense for a different piece of that message or some other message and if not they would they would hit you know keep going and wait till it found another possibility and that's how enigma works and how enigma was cracked yay it's no longer an enigma this is all very cool, and I, while you've been talking, I found a number of interesting Enigma emulators. Oh yes, the, the the net has a bunch. There are both hardware and web pages, and yeah. uh, one one is written in Java, um, and the guy wants to re- recode it in JavaScript for browsers, but has not had a chance to do it yet. But yeah, there there was a Kickstarter project. Um, you can, there are, there are beautiful, there's like a thousand dollar beautiful, like in a wooden box, yeah. the, the whole deal. You're able to, basically they are 100% faithful reproductions of the exact Enigma technology, such that if you had the settings and German ciphertext, you could, and you spoke German, you could figure out what they said. Someone named Louise Dade, who provided the the graphics that we were using, has got one online. And then this is one for Windows that I'm very tempted to download. Uh, that yes. has a beautiful graphic. This is uh, it's just gorgeous. It's from a, a Dutch uh, coder, uh, but it's, it requires Windows, any version of Windows, including the most modern. Um, so this looks kind of fun. I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on my Windows machine. I don't happen to have one here, so I couldn't run it. But isn't that nice? People yeah, love this. Yeah. It's a great subject. You know, and and I think one of the things that's nice is that it is accessible crypto. I mean, yeah. I just described how it works, yeah. and it's not you know it's not that hard. It's clever, and boy, for the t- when you think about what they did at the time, you know, for you know, you know, like in in World War II era technology, basically just all they had was buttons and lights and radio and and, and wires and, and radio. radio. Key. And is this this I guess is a symmetric key crypto because you have to have at some point exchange these sheets that tell you what the settings are. Otherwise, you can't decode. And that's of course the flaw of uh, well, yeah, ciphers. It, it it it's keyed. It, it it's keyed crypto, and it is sort of. I mean, it is symmetric. It in it's sort of like an XOR, where well, you symmetric put in the in, sense that you have to exchange a key with the recipient before you guys can talk. 
Yes, exactly. So, so you have to have the code. In fact, one of the things that would happen is every so since these code books were issued every ninety days, sometimes the allies would capture a code book shortly after issue, and they would get free settings for the balance of ninety days. You hope, you know, if, if they caught it shortly after issue, they'd get almost three months worth of settings. Um, if not, they would get however much time was left on the code book before it was reissued. But so those were windfalls when, when they would get the code book. But what was cool was that because it's a keyed cipher, even having a machine didn't help you. We had machines, right? But we still had to build crazy, right. you know, crazy bombas. It's, it's kind in of order, in order to decrypt them. And, and you mentioned this, but in a very primitive way, like having a Captain Midnight decoder ring. Uh, the ring, Enigma being the ring, a very fancy version of the ring, but you still had to ahead of time exchange the the, the, the settings, otherwise you couldn't right. decipher each other. And that's why public key crypto is so remarkable, because that eliminates that exchange uh, and eliminates one of the big holes uh, in crypto. Um, oh, and we now have uh, – John has brought me a sign so that if I ever lose your audio, <laughs> I, I have something to uh, hold up. <laughs> Uh, really, really uh, interesting uh, stuff. Fascinating, actually. And I hope people get to see. I've seen an Enigma machine in person. Many museums have them. There are quite a few extant still. Probably yep. probably a dozen. But uh, I'd love to go to Bletchley Park someday. And they have quite a nice online uh, site describing a lot of this. Very different from the movie, I'm sad to say. Now that I've seen all the discrepancies in the movie, it takes some of the joy I felt in watching it. It's a wonderful movie. But not yeah. his, not a piece of history, unfortunately. No. Yeah. No. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, we got a nice podcast. And we got a and A next week. So go so, to uh, grc slash feedback. That's where you can ask those questions. While you're there, get Spinrite, world's finest hard drive maintenance utility, and all the freebies Steve gives away all the time. Uh, and of course, sixteen kilobit versions of the audio of this show plus transcriptions i saw that elaine ferris your transcriptionist has put out an epub book of our uh, year ender the or actually it was the new year's uh, first show of the new year wasn't it or was it the year ender no it was the year ender uh, that we did right before our new year's uh, episode uh, eve oh. show where you you had all of the exploits in the year did you know she oh, did okay. that um i did see that yeah <laughs> yeah so that was nice. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I presume it's free. I don't know. Anyway, they, I've tweeted it. Oh, I'm sure. Have yeah. To, yeah. And uh, but of course, all this stuff is free from Steve's site, GRC.com. We have high quality audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash SN. And of course, on all the podcatchers, Security Now, one of the oldest podcasts in the world. So it's easy to find uh, on iTunes and everywhere else. And I'm happy to say that Mark Lane has released a new uh, version of uh, Twit. Uh, Pro for Android that has uh, version 3.0. So we have a no and by the way, these are all independently designed and developed by our uh, you know volunteers who just do this for fun. Um, but uh, Twit Pro just got updated, and of course Craig Mullaney does a great job with uh, the Twit apps on iOS. Uh, he also did a Roku app for us, so lots of ways to watch, uh, even on Windows Phone. Uh, so please do watch and participate and subscribe and be back here. Next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC. For a great Security Now. We'll see you later, Steve. Thanks, Leo.